Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm Brandy, and this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for this week's episode, part one of the Yogurt Shop Murders. I'm rolling solo today, but Chris will be back next week for part two. Give some love to those nurses and doctors out there because they are tired. Tonight, I am sipping on a 2020 Estate Tempranillo from our friends at Edge of the Lake Vineyard. You can help support the show right here at Texas Wine and True Crime on our website, TexasWineandTrueCrime.com. Just click on the Buy Us a Glass of Wine link, and we will give you lots of love and thanks on the show. All right, friends, let's sip some wine and talk some crime. This week, we are discussing the yogurt shop murders in Austin, Texas. As always, I give you a few facts about the city our crime takes place in, but for this week, I'm going to give you three crimes associated with Austin. These are in no particular order, but I will be covering these in the near future, so here we go. Number one, the Austin Axe Murder, also dubbed the Midnight Assassin, a story of terror in 1884. Number two, the gruesome death of Madeline Murray O'Hare. And number three, the murder of Jennifer Cave. This week is the 30-year anniversary of the unsolved quadruple murder at the I Can't Believe It yogurt shop in Austin, Texas. On December 6, 1991, four bodies are found in the family-friendly yogurt shop located in North Austin. The four bodies are children ranging in ages 13 to 17 years old. Two are employees that are closing up for the night. The other two, a younger sibling and a friend hitching a ride home. The four young ladies are found with injuries only inflicted by pure evil. Some are bound, some are gagged, all are sexually assaulted. They are all shot and burned in the back of the yogurt shop. This is the unsolved murders of Jennifer Harbison, Sarah Harbison, Eliza Thomas, and Amy Ayers. Okay, friends, this is a case that has haunted the city of Austin for 30 years. There is a lot of information to get through, so we will be doing a part two, most likely a part three um, for this case. But for today's episode, I want to go over some of the details of the crime and just start from the beginning so really we can really paint the picture of not only what happened 30 years ago, but where the case is as of today in 2021 when we get to parts two and part three. I referenced some things today from Beverly Lowry's book called Who Killed These Girls. I highly, highly recommend this book if you want to freshen up um, on this case. So this is a quadruple homicide back in Austin in 1991. The yogurt shop was located in the Hillside Strip Mall off of West Anderson Lane. So this is 1991. So at this time, Austin was considered very small, very safe, In fact, it was so small and safe, especially in the North Austin area, 
that there will only be one homicide detective on duty that fateful Friday night. And his name is John Jones Jr. Now, he will end up being the lead investigator on this case for several years, but even today remains a pivotal part of the investigation. You know, just throughout all of these years, speaking to the families, really just trying to stay involved with other investigators that have since taken over the case. Around 11.45 p.m., a call comes in from a local Austin police officer, and his name is Troy Gay. He is cruising in the strip mall when he notices smoke coming from a building, so he pulls into the back alley, and as he's approaching... He's driving sort of towards the smoke, if you will. He sees a man outside. So the man basically is signaling him to come, sort of. there. He's outside. He sees the police officer. Now, Troy Gay is actually in his car. So he drives up to the man. They both basically say, yeah, there's, there's a fire. And so Troy Gay goes around to the front of the building and then makes that call. So he calls in and tells dispatch that it looks like a kitchen fire. Maybe something happened after the employees left for the night. But because that was said, this was treated like a fire that needed to just be put out. What they didn't know was that there was four bodies laying inside. The Austin Fire Department calls on different units to assist in this, um, basically trying to put out the fire. So this is 1991. They're calling, um, you know, different, the the fire department's coming. They have emergency, you know, um, the police now are, you know, the police officer called in the fire. So you have all of these different people on, on the scene. And they are starting to extinguish the blaze. It's starting to get a little bit out of control. They don't want the blaze to be going too far into the other buildings. Um, So they really want to put this this out. After extinguishing the blaze, they come across two bodies, then another, and then another. They are soon identified as 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, who was employed at the shop, 17-year-old Jennifer Harvison, who was also working that night, her sister, 15-year-old Sarah Harbison, and the youngest victim, 13-year-old Amy Ayers. Sarah and Amy arrived at the shop around 10 p.m. Closing time was 11. So they had both been at the mall together before arriving at the yoga shop. So Jennifer... Um, Jennifer and Sarah are sisters. So Jennifer had been asked by her mother to drop her sister and Amy off at the mall on her way to work. So that's what she does. And then she leaves work. She gets there about eight o'clock, maybe a little bit before. And then she goes back to pick them up at 9 p.m. at the mall. And she takes them back to the yogurt shop with her. So they're now all four girls are back at the yogurt shop and Amy and Sarah, who are not working, they are just there waiting on Jennifer to close up at 11 and get her right home. They decide to go get a pizza in the only other place that was open in the little strip mall um, besides the yogurt shop. And that is Mr. Gaddy's Pizza. So this was the first time Amy and Sarah had been allowed to go out alone without any adult supervision when they got to the mall that day. So you have these two very young girls who are excited to have no parental supervision. We all remember what that was like. 
and they get to go to the mall and, you know, look around and maybe see some friends. And so it was just a really, really um, exciting time for these two. And thankfully, Sarah has a great older sister, Jennifer, that um, dropped them off, pick them up, make sure they got where they were supposed to, you know, get to where they were supposed to be. And then the girls decide that they are going to pick up that pizza at Mr. Gaddy's and go back to the yogurt shop and eat it. So I want to talk about what was going on at the shop before the store closed. So they end up with quite a few witness statements. Investigators, um, you know, they're really looking at people that were in the shop between the hours of 8 and 11 p.m. that night. Now, there was, I'm sure, different ways that they could say, you see who was in there the entire day. But they did get some um, pretty solid witness statements from that evening. This was a very popular place. It was open until 11, which actually made it the last store to close in the strip mall. So you have people sort of trickling in through the evening hours, maybe stopping in for, you know, a little last minute snack. Um, A couple coming home from the movies um, stops by. There were multiple witnesses that night to seeing the girls there, cleaning up the store, serving customers, and also witness Sarah and Amy sharing the pizza in the booth that they had scooped up from Mr. Gaddy's. Okay, so one eyewitness will say she got the creeps by two guys sitting at a table together with some sort of bag or sack on their, so this bag or sack is sort of sitting in the middle of the table. She will later later say she just had an uneasy feeling and did not remember them actually eating any yogurt while they were sitting there. Another man comes in, and this is when Eliza's mom is in the shop. So Eliza's mom does stop by to visit her daughter at work that night. So she goes in, and this man who works out at the same gym that Eliza's mom does, he just also happens to own a security company. So this guy is on sort of high alert. Um, He notices things. Um, He will say in his witness, you know, he actually, when he heard about these murders um, the next day after, or even, even a few days after it happened, he actually contacted police and wanted to let him, um, let them know what he witnessed that night. So he will claim in a sworn statement that an unruly character approached him in the yogurt shop so he's, he claims this 20-something, I would say, maybe maybe late teens, 20s, comes up to him and he says, what are you? So he's referencing the car outside with the lights on it. Okay, so the the witness claims that this man is standing in line with other people waiting to get a yogurt, okay? So he's in line, but he's letting people sort of go in front of him. He's basically, to me, it's almost like they he didn't want them in there. Maybe he was hoping they were going to get their yogurt and leave, which would leave him sort of the last one in line. So this witness starts to get a little suspicious about this guy, and and he's in this guy is very forward. Are you a cop? Are you a security guard? I mean, he's kind of being a little bit of a smartass. So he felt like maybe he was just trying to figure out 
if he was law enforcement or if he was a security guy. So he tells the guy, listen, I own a security company. And then he just sort of turns away from him. Now, I do want to say that this man, he um, the witness statement claims that he was wearing a camouflage jacket, sort of like military type um, jacket gear of some sort. And I think this is crucial for what we're going to talk about here um, in a little bit. So he answers his question and tells him, listen, I own a security company. Um, and then he just kind of ignores him after that, right? So this boy, young man, asks Eliza if he can use the restroom in the back. So she tells him yes. So this guy in the camo goes back into the restroom. Now, the, the witness, the man that knows Eliza's mom and is with Eliza's mom at the front, he's now holding yogurt. He went to go get yogurt for himself and, and another friend or a couple of other friends. So he's sitting there with yogurt. He wants this guy to come out of the bathroom. He's waiting on this guy to come out of the bathroom. Well, finally, he just leaves. The guy, he doesn't know how, uh, how much longer the guy was in the restroom or when he actually came out. Um, he doesn't witness the guy actually coming out. But when he went up to Eliza, he ordered a Coke, not any yogurt. So key witness here, key person of interest possibly here. So so let's remember, um, let's remember that. By the way, the witness also asked Eliza, you know, where's he going? And she said, well, he's he's using the bathroom. And he says, well, you have public restrooms like you're, you know, I thought I thought only employees. And she's like, no, we we let people use the bathroom. So um, we will talk later about what this yogurt shop looked like. It, this is a very small place, I would say, as far as like where the yogurt is and going to the back of the building. It's pretty small, pretty tight. The area had about, you know, five or six tables and it had set of booths on one side. Um, and I do believe a set of booths on the other side. So the seating area was a lot bigger, I think, than the back area. So we'll uh, we'll talk about that here in just a bit. So let's talk about the last couple to enter the store that night. So this couple comes in at 10.42 p.m. In a sworn statement they see two large men sitting in the booth closest to the cash register in jackets. Now, remember, this is December um, and it's cold. Sometimes, you know, being here in Texas, it's like right now, we're getting a little bit of a warm front and then it'll chill up again. But sometimes it's freezing by this time of year, right? So these guys are in what she considers kind of big bulky jackets, just big jackets. The woman is really eyeing these two because she notices a few things. One, they were not eating any yogurt. They were sipping sodas, and she claimed they were leaning in, talking to each other. Now, she says their faces were so close to one another across the table that she thought maybe the two men were actually in a relationship, like they were actually together. She claims they were whispering, and she just had an uneasy feeling in their presence. Now, I will tell you, I find it interesting that witness to the man using the restroom sees someone order a Coke, no yogurt, and then we have another witness, a totally different couple coming in later 
saying that they see two men drinking sodas, not eating yogurt as well. And I also find it very interesting that several witnesses that night claimed to have either uneasy feelings about people inside of the yogurt shop. And a few people also told police <clears throat> that there was some suspicious, there was a suspicious white van parked in front of the shop. Now, not all of the witnesses reported the same uneasy incidents that night, but they could somehow all be correlated and resulted in the horrible tragedy that took place that night. So Bryce Foods was a company um, based out of Dallas and was the parent company of the I Can't Believe It Yogurt franchise. So Bryce Foods was sold in 1996 to a company um, out of Canada. Now, the founders, Bill and Julie Bryce, they were no longer involved in the company. They were also from Dallas. A quick story, those that didn't know, TCBY was sued by ICBY, which is I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, and people know TCBY. Um, TCBY was sued by ICBY prior to 1984 because the company's name, This Can't Be Yogurt, um, and it, it drew out this big lawsuit, and they basically had to change. It forced TCBY to create a new name from its initials, eventually using the country's best yogurt. So they got the name country's best yogurt from a lawsuit. So there you go. Back in 1991, Bryce Foods had a very, very precise and clear closing procedure for the yogurt shop, which we know Jennifer and Eliza used when they were closing that night. Now, this is important in this case because we know not only was there a list of closing duties, but we know the girls always made sure they closed the store properly. This will help investigators really understand how far the girls got into their closing duties before things took a turn. Um, now, Chris and I have both been in the bar restaurant biz, so we understand closing duties, as I'm sure a lot of you listening. And we're talking about a Friday night. We're talking two 17-year-olds. So I remember, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to assume that Eliza and Jennifer are doing a little bit here, a little bit there, cleaning up, you know, this and cleaning up that. So when it's closing time, when 11 o'clock hits, or even a few minutes after 11, they are ready to go there. They will close out the register, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, because we I have experience with this too. Um, and what we know Eliza did before, um, as far as like ringing up the register. Um, so, you know, they're, they're going to close out the register, they're going to lock up, and they're going to be ready to head out. So one of the closing duties they were to do was to lock the front door from the inside with a key at 10 minutes to closing time, no matter if there were still people inside or not. So the last couple to leave will say that Jennifer locked the door behind them. So this is the couple that witnesses the two guys, the two creepy guys sitting in the booth closest to the cash register. So this booth is the closest to the, the, where the yogurt is served. So this couple leaves and they say Jennifer locks the door behind them after they leave the shop. 
So this leaves the two men still inside at the booth. One key thing they find the crime scene, the front door was locked and the key was inside of the lock on the inside. So Jennifer locked the door, left the key in the keyhole from the inside. Now, part of the closing duty was then to take the key and lock the door from the outside, right? When it's time for the girls to leave, they open the door, they take the key from the inside, open the front door, go to the outside, lock the door, and then they stick the key in an envelope and slide it under the front door. So this was how they um, were to leave the key for um, the following the following day. So this is significant because we now know this was done on the inside. They weren't caught off guard outside of the building. The, 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 the key was in the keyhole found on the inside of the building. So they weren't caught off guard outside trying to close up. And then they're led back inside by perpetrators. I am convinced whomever committed this crime was inside of the building at closing time since there was absolutely no sign of any type of forced entry. The other closing duty I want to mention was refilling the napkin dispenser. The married couple that were the last known customers in the store besides the two men sitting in the booth, they both said Jennifer was refilling the napkin dispensers when they were sitting there eating their yogurt. It is confirmed the napkin dispenser on the table where the two men were sitting was empty. And I have to say, friends, this solidified my theory that the two men sitting at the booth that night are indeed involved in this crime. If at any time they would have left the table, Jennifer or Eliza would have made sure the dispenser was filled before leaving that night. They had put chairs on some of the booths. There were there were chairs on almost every single table except that one as well. So it is believed that whomever was sitting there never actually got up and left. Um, let's go ahead and talk about what we know about the crime scene. We're going to cover more of this in part two, but I do want to go over a few things of what we know. The last record on the cash register that night was when Eliza rang up a no sale at 11.03 p.m. So this is three minutes after closing. So I think back of when my bartending days and I remember having to count my money at the end, um, put it in a you know, a Ziploc bag. Um, There was, you know, we would hand it to the manager. There would be a safe we would put it in. So there was very clear and and precise um, things I had to do to close out my register. But the first thing was, if you don't have a sale to ring up, you hit no sale in order for your register to open. So this is what I think was happening at 11.03 p.m., Okay, another thought I had as well was if these two are sitting at the booth and it's now 11 o'clock, it's time for closing, and let's say that they're just drinking their sodas 
If I'm an employee, maybe I'm thinking or asking them, hey, is there anything else you need? Is there anything else you're going to need because I'm going to close out my register and we're going to turn the machines off, right? We're, we're going to get ready to close. Is there anything else you need? I would not be surprised if one of the girls had asked them that. And maybe that's why Eliza decided at 11.03, she can count her money because there's not going to be any more sales. We know that most of the crime occurred in the back storage area of the yogurt shop. So you have these shelves with styrofoam cups, these napkins, plasticware, different items used for the business. There is also a back office that is found completely locked and undisturbed. Now, at this point, police believe the motive to be robbery because there is approximately $540 missing from the store. But there was a safe in the office, but no evidence that anyone ever attempted to access the office. They find four bodies Two bodies are lying horizontal on top of one another. That would be Jennifer Harbison and Eliza Thomas. Sarah Harbison is found laying next to the two girls. But Amy Ayers' body is found in a totally different spot, different area than when the girls are found. She is found closer to the bathrooms. I do have a diagram of where the bodies were located, which I will post on our socials. Um, just so you can see where, um, after the blaze was put out, where and how the girls were found. Um, all of them were found nude. Their clothes and shoes um, are found neatly folded and sitting against a wall. Their shoes are paired together, neatly lined up. Their clothes are folded and neatly stacked there is absolutely no evidence that their clothing, their, their clothing was physically removed by the perpetrators. It was as though they were forced to undress. And I want to point something out here. The witness that was concerned about the man using the restroom, remember in the camo when he was getting yogurt, um, the man, the, the man that we, that ordered the Coke that we talked about. So, I find it interesting when I read and, and thought about the clothing and the shoes. The first thing that came to my head when I read that was military. This tells me, I, I, I'm trying to think of, of all of the research I've done, all of the cases I have ever read about in my entire life, everything that we have re we read and and. Um, think about with serial killers or arsonists or, you know, um, rapists or anyone, rob, you know, if robbery is a motive. But for someone to take the time to basically tell the girls, because I don't believe they just did that on their own free will. I think they were directed to fold their clothes neatly place them on top of each other, put their shoes against the wall. To me, that screams, screams military. I, I even would, I feel very confident about this, um, that at least one of the perpetrators has some sort of military background. Ponder on that one a little bit. 
Sarah, Jennifer, and Eliza had been gagged with pieces of their own clothing. And friends, I'm about to get into some really detailed stuff. And I do this because we really, you know, when we talk about these cases, things are just um, sometimes really hard to wrap our head around. But to talk about pure evil and who was responsible for this. Remember, these are these this is unsolved, unsolved 30 years later. Um, but what kind of monster are we looking for? We're talking about four girls between the ages of 13 and 17. And, and, and not only that, but there wasn't a whole lot of time spent in this yogurt shop committing this crime. And there was so much damage done to the women, to the place. It, it's just hard to fathom um, what evil walked in that night. The gags were knotted behind their heads. Two girls were found with their hands bound behind their backs. That would be Eliza and Sarah. Sarah, Jennifer, and Eliza had all been shot with a 22 in the back of their heads. Amy was the only one that was shot twice, and she had actually two calibers. She had been shot with a 22 and a 38. So based on the evidence, it is believed that all four, four girls were forced to their knees with their faces towards the ground. So on their knees, basically like in a, a prayer stance, if, you're, if your face is to the ground. So they determined this was most likely the positions based on the blood spatter that, that, they, that they were able to find. It is believed Amy was shot last. So they do believe maybe they were all lined up. Um, faced an opposite direction of the perpetrators. They were all forced to look down. Now, if the sh if the shot is a twenty-two to all four, to me, okay, so that's one perpetrator. I believe that one person was shooting all four at the same time, and I do believe Amy was last. I believe this because. I think she knew what was coming and she was able to turn her head in a way so that the bullet, it still hit her head, but it almost, it grazed her head and it injured her, but it didn't kill her. Her body was found, um, her, I'm sorry, her blood was found in several different areas from where the girls were found up to the place where actually her body was located. So that tells me she either crawled that way on her own, sort of swiping blood along the way, or she was forced to that area and then went once they got her to that area, um, she was shot with the 38. So we do know there are two guns involved in this crime. So when Amy was found, she had no clear indication that she had been bound or gagged, but she did have a ligature tied around her neck. Um, I think we can all agree that the fire was set to cover up this crime. Sarah, Eliza, and Jennifer were severely charred to the bone. So they do believe the fire was started um, in the back of the building. Um, it had melted um, I mean, it was, it was a mess. There were just cans everywhere. There was styrofoam cups, napkins. Um, the one question that, um, they had was, did the fire start on the wall with 
you know, the napkins and the styrofoam, was it set there or were the girls set on fire first? And we're going to, we're going to kind of talk about that. Um, so we know though, that everything that takes place in this building happens in the very, very back. So nobody walking by, nobody that's looking in the front door can actually see any of this, um, actually going on. So, um, okay. So Sarah, Eliza and Jennifer, um, like I mentioned, were severely charred to the bone. They were burned beyond recognition. Their faces were completely gone. Um, they actually had to go to their cars and identify them. So they were able to get into Jennifer and Eliza's car and look at their insurance or anything that they had in there. And then that's when they realized um, who, you know, at least two of the bodies were, were, were these two girls. Amy was not charred, but she had received second and third degree burns on 30% of her body. Um, we will talk about theories of what happened with Amy in part two, since she was found in a much different state than the rest of the girls. Um, they do believe Amy, um, investigators do believe Amy, the youngest of the four, 13 years old, was raped first. A full DNA profile from one of the perpetrators was left inside of her. The other guy was raping Jennifer, they do believe most likely simultaneously because he leaves a partial DNA profile inside of her. Now, they also find Jennifer's boyfriend's DNA profile inside of her. So he was questioned and cleared of any involvement in this case. Um, he does tell them they were clearly sexually active, which is why um, they found his DNA. But uh, he, was, he was cleared of, any, of, of no involvement in this case. Sarah had injuries to her vulva area, vulva, uh, vulva area, which would indicate she was sexually assaulted before she was killed. Eliza's DNA was found in Sarah's anal cavity, so it is believed Eliza was sexually assaulted before Sarah. Both partials of the DNA were found in Sarah. Guys, this is a rough case. Um, and again... I think, you know, to me, it takes a an incredibly evil human being to do this type of thing to one person. But then you have four girls. You Somebody was able to take charge of four girls in the back of a small yogurt shop. And, and I mean, it wasn't just robbery. <clears throat> this wasn't just robbery. This wasn't just murder. This was just pure, pure evil. That's the, that's the only way I can describe it. Unfortunately, with all of the water that was used to put out the fire, there is no doubt it washed away crucial evidence. Eight days after the murders, a teenager by the name of Maurice Pierce was arrested for carrying a weapon in a public area. It happened to also be a twenty-two. The police were determined to nail someone to the cross for this crime. But what police aren't expecting are the four dozen confessions to this crime, the kidnapping, rape, torture, and the murder of another Austin female not even a month after the yogurt shop murders, 
and the police under the wire to solve the most gruesome case in Austin history. Next week, we will talk about the confessions, the suspects, the layout of the shop, and how four girls can be brutally murdered and controlled in such a way that a man sharing the same wall with the yogurt shop heard absolutely nothing. This concludes part one of the yogurt shop murders. If you want to see pictures related to this case, you can find them on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Huge thank you to Edge of the Lake Vineyard for sponsoring the show for the month of November. I am giving five corks to this delicious wine. This estate Tempranillo is a 91% Tempranillo and 9% Grenache blend. It is ruby in color. The nose is bold with leather, tobacco, and peppercorn. Has just wonderful mouthfuls of hints of cocoa, tobacco, a heavy pepper finish with a slight caramel that helps lighten the high alcohol that makes this wine so enjoyable. I was about to say, it's pretty yummy and a little buzzy. I wish I had Chris's food right now. (laughs) The slight addition of the Grenache helps add some earthiness and a hint of raspberry deep in the collide of the complex wine that this is. This wine in a real true is a real true representation of what the estate grapes can be and helps express the unique microclimate of being a lakeside vineyard. And we have a bonus for all of our listeners. If you go visit our friends at Edge of the Lake Vineyard and mention the show, they will give you a free wine tasting. They have great wine and they are great people. So you can't beat that, friends. Go visit our friends at the Edge of the Lake Vineyard and tell them your friends from Texas Wine and True Crime sent you. So since we this is December and tis the season for giving, tonight I want to mention Toys for Tots. Now, I do believe they are finished receiving gifts for this Christmas. I think they cut it off around this time. But the beautiful thing about Toys for Tots is you can give all year long. There's so many ways to donate and volunteer, whether it's dropping off an unwrapped toy, giving a monetary donation, becoming a sponsor, volunteering your time. Guys, so many ways to donate. Toys for Tots makes it easy for anyone to get involved. Established in 1947 and run by the United States Marine Corps Reserve, their mission is to distribute toys to children whose parents cannot afford to buy them gifts for Christmas. Please check out our friends at toysfortots.org and see how you can lend a helping hand. Until next time, friends, stay safe, have fun, and cheers to next time.